0: Friends, turn your Bibles this morning to Joshua 3. Joshua 3. It's on page 179 of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, that Bible is there for you if you forgot your Bible or you don't have a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please do take it home. Make it your Bible. That's why we have those there. And that would give us a lot of joy for you to make it your Bible and read from it. Friends, uh, we're picking up this morning in the book of Joshua. And we do so with perhaps the most important event in the entire book, the entire story of Joshua, Israel's miraculous crossing of the Jordan River and their entrance into the promised land. Friends, this story, the crossing of the Jordan, has spoken powerfully to God's people throughout history. And one of the reasons I know this to be true is how this event, the crossing of the Jordan, fills our hymns, our songs. Take William William's 18th century hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside, death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Or we think of Samuel Stennett's old hymn on Jordan's Stormy Banks, which we'll sing at the end of the sermon to a a modern tune. Or maybe the African-American spiritual Deep River, which American slaves may very well have sung as they suffered in their bondage. Deep River. My home is over Jordan, deep river, Lord. I want to cross over into campground. Friends, why do Christians feel such an emotional and spiritual connection to a river crossing event in 1400 BC? Why do we continue to sing today about this ancient river that still flows in modern day Palestine? Well, I think there's an easy answer. Christians have long recognized the crossing of the Jordan as a pivotal point in God's fulfilling of His great promises to his, to his people, which, of course, forecast greater fulfillments yet to come. Friends, we mentioned this in week one, but in the biblical storyline, the promised land of Canaan isn't just a parcel of valuable Middle Eastern property, is it? God intended the land to picture our inheritance as believers in Jesus, both now and in the inheritance that we received already in the spirit and our final inheritance, the new heavens and new earth that Jesus will lead us into one day. And so so Christians have understood this Exodus-like deliverance at the Jordan River where the waters parted to be part of the pattern of God's mighty acts of salvation that culminated in our greater Joshua, our Lord Jesus By Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, He has led us out of the wilderness of death and exile into the land of life and blessing. In this mighty act of the Lord, in this baptism, if you will, of God's people, we find a preview of greater acts and greater baptisms still to come. And that's why we sing about it even today. That's why the Jordan River Crossing matters to you and to me this morning. In a moment, friends, we're going to take the the next five minutes or so to read through all of Joshua 3 and 4, really into verse 1 of chapter 5. Remember, though, in just a quick quick catch-up. In chapter 1, the Lord had commissioned Joshua to be the new Moses, to courageously lead God's people into the land accordance with the Word. Chapter 2 is a bit of a behind-the-scenes interlude in the story by showing us God's mercy to Rahab and her remarkable faith. And now chapter 3 picks up where chapter 1 left off. The people are ready. They are ready to enter the land of promise. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days... The officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way that you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel and to each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from among the people, from each tribe a man, and command them saying, take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in, in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them into the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the Ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came out up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. They encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because... Of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, I hope it's evident after reading the story why we're looking at all of chapters three and four this morning as a single unit of text. Because despite what the translators of your English Bible may have put as kind of the chapter heading in each of chapters three and four, they are both, both chapters about the crossing of. Of the Jordan by the children of Israel. Notice that as late in the account as chapter 4 and verse 15, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, they're still standing in the riverbed, right? Even while the memorial stones are being gathered, the priests had not left the Jordan at that at that point. So really what you have in Joshua 3 and 4 is kind of a a, a storytelling sandwich. Okay, in chapter 3, the people prepare to cross the Jordan and then they enter it as the Lord rolls back the waters. And then at the end of chapter four, the people exit the Jordan and they encamp on the other side. And right in the middle of the story is the memorializing of the whole thing, which seems to bear special weight and significance at the very center of the story. Friends, here's the main idea of Joshua 3.1 to 5.1 that I trust will be the main idea. Set the agenda for the sermon this morning. Beloved, rest assured And continually remember God powerfully acts to bring his people home. Rest assured and trust yourself to the Lord and call it continually to mind. Continually remember this. Our God powerfully acts to bring his people home. And one thing that becomes just very obvious when you read the account is that the hero... The central figure of this story is not Joshua, is it? Joshua is not the ultimate savior and deliverer here, but our God, he is the one from start to finish who performs this mighty act on behalf of his people. So what particularly about our God do we see in these chapters? Well, three things, I think. Number one, we see the presence of the living God. The presence of the living God with his people. Number two, the wonders of the mighty God, the wonders of the mighty God and rolling back the waters and then rolling them back in. Number three, the memorial to the saving God. The presence of the living God, the wonders of the mighty God and the memorial to the saving God. Friends, I pray this morning, we all might come to a fuller worship and trust in our God. And yes, even a fuller remembrance of all that he has done to save us. Number one, the presence of the living God. I just mentioned a moment ago that that God is the the central figure of this story. That's true, but I think you could also accurately say that the main character of this story is the Ark of the Covenant. You can see it right there in verse 3. The officers of the army instructed the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. So friends, central to this story is the fact that the children of Israel cannot lose sight of the Ark. And the narrator of the story will not let us, as the readers, lose sight of it either. I mean, in these two chapters, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned by name 17 times. You know, I'm sure most of us don't give much time thinking about the Ark of the Covenant, except maybe when watching Indiana Jones. But this small wooden box was massively important to the life of Israel. Most of the time, the Ark was kept inside the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, and then later in Israel's history, the temple. The, the book of Exodus tells us, that above the gold lid of the ark, between the wings of the cherubim angels fastened to the lid, God descended to dwell among His people. Friends, the ark of the covenant was the the location of God's special covenant presence with His people. Later, in the poetry of Israel, like the Psalms, it pictures the ark of God as His footstool where He is enthroned in the midst of his people. So friends, when Joshua commanded the people to follow the ark, there's just no question what he's doing. He's commanding them to follow the Lord. The ark is a stand-in symbol for the holy, powerful, gracious presence of the living God among his people. When we read Joshua's instruction in in verses 3 to 7 to 13, that the priests were to take the ark into the river. What we're really watching is God himself moving into the Jordan ahead of his people. It's his presence and powerful hand that stops the waters in their tracks to deliver his people. From this incredible feat of deliverance is his alone. The Lord did not ask for a helping hand from Israel. They're merely spectators, aren't they, to the mighty work of the Lord. It's the Lord who will fight their battles and win them, bring them into victory. Salvation is his and his alone. In verse four, the officers tell the people to keep this sizable difference, a distance between themselves and the ark. And I think we're right to see this instruction as evidence of God's compassion and his kindness. The people had not traveled this way before. They had no idea where they were going Before them lie untold dangers and Canaan and the mighty river itself barring their entrance into the land. But friends, what the people had was the advantage of knowing that the Lord of all the earth was leading them from the front. And that gave them assurance and confidence that everything would be all right. If they simply follow him by faith, there's no doubt that they'll land safe on Canaan's side. In verse five, on the eve of the crossing, Joshua tells the people to consecrate themselves, to make themselves ceremonially ready, just as Moses had commanded the people to do at Sinai. The whole thing has this sacred, worshipful feel, doesn't it? Why? Because when the Lord decides to unveil his glory, his people must be spiritually prepared. They dare not be flat-footed or hard-hearted like they had been in the desert so many times in the past 40 years. The Holy One is about to display His glory before them. So Joshua commands them in verse 5, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Friends, this word wonders is the same word that the Lord used when He spoke to Moses from the burning bush. when He predicted that what He was about to do in Egypt to set his people free. He's going to do the same thing now. He's going to perform wonders. In verses seven and following, we learn of God's purposes, at least one of them and in, in doing this miracle. Verse seven, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Friends, in other words, One of the central purposes and why God rolled back the waters of the Jordan, just like he did at the Red Sea, was to give Joshua honor among the people so that he might be exalted as Israel's captain and and deliverer, just like Moses was, and so that they would then commit to obey his leadership. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Look down at uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Chapter four, verse 14, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. The Lord called his shot and then kept his word. Joshua was exalted. But his exaltation was a means to an end, wasn't it? God's aim in raising up Joshua's fame was so that Israel would have a firm confidence, a rock-solid assurance that he, the Lord of all the earth, was in their midst and that there would be no question that he was about to drive out their enemies from the land. Look at verse 10. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you All the ites, right? All the peoples of the land. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over you before you into the Jordan. Friends, in contrast to the dead idols of the Canaanite tribes, the one who inhabited the ark, the one who inhabited the life of the people was the living God. He was the God of all the earth. He's not a tribal deity. He's the universal king. So friends, you want to know what God is doing here? What God is doing to his people is mercifully stooping to grant assurance to a doubting people that he's with them. Imagine the doubts and the fears that must have flooded their hearts. None of the Israelites except for Joshua and Caleb were alive during the exodus from Egypt. All the rest had died in the wilderness in God's judgment. So the people had only heard about what God did in the Exodus. They'd only heard about the miracle of the Red Sea. So could they really trust that God had their best interests at heart when he's now calling them to cross the Jordan into the land? Did he really love them enough to act in their behalf? I mean, this Canaanite conquest seems ridiculous on its face. No military manual would have told them to advance. This is a suicide mission, humanly speaking. Not to mention sprawling before them now on the eastern border of Canaan, far as the eye could see, was the deep rushing Jordan, blocking their path, just like the Red Sea had done 40 years earlier. So the Lord steps forward and essentially says, watch, watch what I'm going to do to assure you that I am with you and that all you have to do is trust And obey me. The battle is already won. As one commentator put it, if Yahweh can tame a raging river, he can also repel attacking Amorites. If he can stop up the Jordan, he can put down the Girgashite. If he can get you into the land, he can surely give you the land. This weekend, Lindsay's out of town. And wouldn't you know it? On the very first night, she was gone. Uh, we could not find my three-year-old Canaan's lovey, the blanket that he has slept with ever since uh, he's. It's been safe enough to him for him to have something in the in the bed or the crib. I think I've mentioned this before, friends. This is a DEFCON five level emergency. You understand, right? Why? Because there's something about lovey that makes Canaan feel safe. He can sleep tight if Lovey is with him. If it's not, he cannot sleep. Friends, we look for 30 minutes, 30 minutes straight, all three of us, my parents here, nothing. We still haven't found Lovey. I don't know if kids threw him away in the trash on home group night or what, but he's gone. Thankfully, that night, Hadley brought Canaan uh, a stuffed cheetah, uh, which Canaan has effectually named Trash truck, the, the, the cheetah. And so for now, that is substituting for Lovey. But here's the thing, here's the thing. In those moments where we didn't have Lovey and the cheetah had not yet made its appearance, there was nothing that I could do to convince Canaan that everything was gonna be okay. I even lay down in the bed with him, his father, to try to assure him and calm him and get him to go to sleep, nothing worked. He needed a deeper, more tangible Assurance that he knew. You know, if we're honest, you and I are are no different, albeit in some more grown up ways. So often we are filled with doubts, we are filled with fears, we lack gospel assurance of the Lord's presence with us, friends. I think there's a difference theologically and even in our Christian life between hard hearted rejection and unbelief, and the struggle of faith in doubt. When Jesus walked the earth, stubborn, intractable rejection earned from him a word of judgment. But doubts and fears so often earned his gentleness and his tenderness. Maybe you're here this morning and you have doubts about the Lord's presence with you because of your own sin. There's a, there's a sin in your life that you have not been able to put down. And its presence in your life is robbing you of the assurance of the Lord's presence with you. Maybe you're a a Christian, but you're struggling with some sort of intellectual doubt about what the Bible reveals about God. Maybe even this story with its miraculous elements are are a bit of a tripping point for you somehow. Maybe your doubts and fears are circumstantial. You, You question why God would bring these hard and difficult things into your life. Friends, whatever is the cause of your doubt, think our God is calling us this morning to remember that the God of the Israelites at the Jordan is our God you may change but he does not And the same theological logic employed by Joshua here in chapter 3 is applied by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 if God did not hold back his son but gave him up for us if he went that far can we not then rest assured that he will grant all other provisions required for our full salvation? If you're truly in Christ, friends, no doubt of yours is big enough to drive your God away. As Christians, we carry the confidence with us that not merely that God dwells among his people, but that Christ came to us as our Emmanuel, God with us. Because Christ humbled himself to death, our God exalted Jesus, our greater Joshua, to the highest place. He has worked wonders for us when he raised his son up from the grave all the way to the right hand of the Father. And not only that, he poured out his very spirit who resides in us and among us as the down payment of our full inheritance in the land. Jesus said, behold, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Beloved, just like Israel was to look to the ark standing in the Jordan and be assured, so you and I look to our God in Christ, to Jesus, to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to the right hand of the Father with the unshakable confidence that what God started, he will no doubt finish. Christ is there and we share his victory. So beloved, when doubts arise, by all means, assault your doubt. Assault your fears with truth. Don't listen to yourself as if your doubts and fears are your best therapist, right? Preach to yourself. Remind your soul of the life-changing truths that your God is trustworthy. He always has been and he always will be. He's the God of the Jordan whose presence is always with us. Number two, the wonders. Of the mighty God the presence of the living God the wonders of the mighty God in verses 12 and 13 Joshua commanded the priests bearing the ark not merely to go to the water's edge but all the way into the Jordan right? he promised them clearly from revelation from God that when they stepped into the waters the flow of the waters would be cut off and according to verse 13 they would stand in one heap Okay, that language of standing in a heap, it reflects actually the song of Moses in Exodus 15, after God parted the waters of the Red Sea. At the blast of your nostrils, the wild the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap. Friends, there's just no question that what we're seeing here is nothing less than a second Exodus, right? It's the Red Sea 2.0 in verse 17. Look at verse 17. And then again in in, in chapter 4, verse 18 and verse 22, we're told that the priests stood and the, the children of Israel passed over on what? On dry ground. That is exactly what was said of the children of Israel at the Red Sea. Exodus 14, 22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Well, and then in verse... 23 of chapter 4, the author of the story tells us as explicitly as possible the crossing of the Jordan was an exodus, second edition. You see that? For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did at the Red Sea. See, there it is. What's the point? The point is that the God that led them out of slavery is the God that's leading them into the promised land. Right? He's repeating the same type of wonder so that they might fear him, this new generation might fear him and worship him as the one true and living God. I don't know if you notice this as we read. The author describing this account kind of described tell he tells the story almost like it's in slow motion, you know, like a slow motion replay of a ball game on TV. Look at verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, the tension starts to rise, right? And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, the tension builds. And the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the tension builds again. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Like, what? What? <laughs> Like, why did the author build this tension, detail by detail by detail, phrase by phrase, bringing us to the very edge of our seat, right? Only to give us a little data about river conditions in the Canaanite spring. Friends, this random factoid isn't random at all, is it? He supplies it to help us appreciate the miracle. God hasn't led his people to the Jordan in a season when the Jordan is easily crossable or it can be forded or bridged easily. No, today, just like if you go to Israel today, you'll see the Jordan River is about 90 to 100 feet broad on a normal day. It's not that wide, is it? Its normal depth is about three to 10 feet. Again, not that deep in a normal day or a normal time of year. But this wasn't a normal day. This wasn't a normal time of year. This was the rainy season, the flood season, the time of harvest. When Jordan's banks were flooded and the river's floodplain, friends, is anywhere from 200 yards to a mile wide. And this floodplain around the Jordan is packed with tangled brush and and kind of would have been like a rivery jungle for the people. Plus, the Jordan flows downhill. Its source is in the Sea of Galilee. And then it flows downhill to the Salt Sea or what we know today as the Dead Sea. During the flood season, the Jordan was not a gentle, placid brook. It was a raging, mile-wide torrent. There's a reason, friends, Joshua's instruction wasn't, every tribe should select their best architect and structural engineer and go build us a bridge. No, the Lord, thank you. The Lord led his people to the river in a time when it would have been humanly impossible for them to cross on their own why? Why would he do this? Surely he could have just pushed pause, called time out on the conquest for a few weeks or months and given them time to, when they could, you know, wade across or build a a bridge. Why now? Well, friends, I think this is one more instance of our God delighting to demonstrate his might and his glory in the face of human weakness and helplessness. He was forcefully proving the point to Israel that they brought nothing to the table in their salvation. Their entry into the land is all of grace. It was all of God. Friends, you realize that when we get to heaven, when you and I reach Canaan's fair and happy land one day and someone asks us, how did you arrive here? Friends, we will not be able to say, oh, I built a wonderful bridge across death's divide. I did enough in my good works or my moral lifestyle, my best intentions, not to be deluged by the waters of God's judgment for my sin. No, friends, our only answer of how we arrived in the land will be my God mercifully stop the waters of his wrath that I deserve. He held them back and said, you cross, they're going to fall on my son. He stepped into the waters, our king did, and then he emerged victorious on the other side. I'm here in the land because of Christ alone. It's all of grace. It's mercy that we don't deserve, nor could we ever attain on our own. And friends, I think the Lord delights, doesn't he, to repeat this pattern of proving that he's the God who does the impossible in our lives as Christians, doesn't he? He brings us into impossible circumstances so often that seem bleak, that seem hopeless, with the express purpose of impressing deep upon our souls that if, that if we make it through, if we're not overwhelmed by the flood, it's gonna be to his credit alone. Friends, I, I would say that this is what the Lord did with our church over the last few months, honestly, in relation to where we would meet. He made the situation seem impossible from my vantage. He shut door after door after door that we tried to force open. Even in the very week that we were supposed to sign and renew the lease at the old location, we still did not have an answer from the Lord. All we could do is turn our eyes to him and to remember that our help and provision comes from him alone. His strength is magnified in our weakness. Beloved, our God knows, your God knows that your highest good, your greatest joys are found in him. They're not found in yourself. They're certainly not found in the things of this world. And so what he does sometimes is to remove all possibility of pretense that you're the one that's in control, that you're the one who has authority over your lives and over your circumstances so that he might show you his glory. The question in these times is, Will we trust our God to be God? Will we follow him into the waters? Let's pick it back up in verse 16. When the feet of the priests were dipped in at the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. the, The priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Friends, this text reminds us that we serve a God who is utterly in control of his creation. The waters of the Jordan are like Plato in his hands. I know it's water, not matter, but that's just what it is, isn't it? This is evidence of the lordship and supremacy of our God. You know, if you're not a Christian here today, I could understand that this part of the scripture might be tough for you to believe. None of us have ever seen something like this happen. If you have, let me know. I'd love to see if you've got it on iPhone video. But most of us, I'm sure, have never seen this happen. But friend, because God is the sovereign ruler of creation, just because we've never seen something like this happen doesn't mean that it cannot or it did not. This is God's world. He does with it what he pleases. And that being said, I just want you to know that there have been accounts of numerous rock slides in the Jordan Valley so severe that they stopped the entire flow of the Jordan. Even as recently as 1921 that happened. So could God have used something like that to stop the Jordan's flow 19 miles north at Adam? Sure, he could have done that. Did he have to do that? Of course not. Of course not. The creator is not bound by the laws that he, that he made, that he created. He can suspend them whenever he wants to. Friends, this picture of God's authority over his creation is jaw-dropping. At the very moment, at the very moment, did you see that each time? At the very moment, the priest's feet touch the waters, the wilders pile up. At the very moment, the soles of the priest's feet stepped out of the riverbed, the waters overflowed its banks just as before. I think the description in verse 23 is so plain to help us understand. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan until you passed over. Just as he did at the Red Sea so that you might fear the Lord your God forever. And of course, friends, we see that very purpose in motion in verse one of chapter five. We're told that when the kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites heard about the exploits of the enthroned God of, of Israel, Their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit left in them because of the people. Friends, what this passage ought to do, in addition to giving you assurance, it ought to take your breath away in awe and worship of God's mighty power. It should humble us, should cause us to worship. Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who's numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold, our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. The presence of the living God, the wonders of the mighty God, and finally, friends, the memorial to the saving God. Friends, right at the center of this passage, right at the heart of it, is the Lord's instruction that the tribes of Israel memorialize this event. What's remarkable about this part of the story isn't so much that God wanted Israel to erect a monument to mark the event. That's a very normal thing in ancient times and modern times. I mean, we have all types of monuments around our country and around our cities and around our universities marking important people, marking important events. These monuments are fixed reminders of significant things that, that someone wants us to remember. So what's remarkable, I I don't think is the memorializing itself. What's remarkable to me is the fact that God commanded these stones to be brought from the Jordan while the miracle is taking place. Do you see that? Look at verse one of chapter four. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take twelve men from the people, each, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take twelve stones from, from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. It's kind of crazy if you think about it, isn't it? So confident is Joshua over God's authority over the waters his protection of the people that he calls for this stone collecting party while the waters stood at attention 19 miles north right ready to be unleashed at any time. You know it'd be the equivalent of like the beneficiary of a of a rooftop helicopter rescue like in a flood. We've seen those, right? Somebody the, the floods rise they're on they, they have nowhere to go, they're on top of their roof, the helicopter descends and all of a sudden, those who are being saved says, hey, wait, 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 let's, let's take a picture to commemorate this. Like, nobody does that. Nobody does that. But the Lord's like, slow down here. Slow down. Pause for a second. It's really important that you take time to remember what I'm doing. You know, he did the same thing at the Passover, didn't he? The people were gonna depart in haste out of Egypt. But God said, celebrate the Passover to mark and memorialize my mighty hand of deliverance. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, told his disciples, slowed them down, and took time to commemorate the Lord's Supper, to memorialize forever for his church what he did upon the cross. Friends, clearly the 12 stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. At the Jordan River, God saved all his people, from generation to generation, from age to age, all were to remember this great and awesome day. You can see it in your mind's eye, can't you? Maybe 15 years or so, post-Jordan, an Israelite father walks along the, the Jordan Valley with his little son. They're walking at Gilgal State Park. The boy start, spots a, a large pile, a pile of stones over there, and he counts 12, and he asks, he says, hey, Daddy, what are those stones for? And the son's curiosity becomes the occasion for communicating him, communicating to him the news of Israel's mighty and promise-keeping God. Friends, it's our habit here at RGC to bring our children back into the service, when we celebrate baptism, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I hope you won't ever roll your eyes or become frustrated by having to go pick up your kids or that the kids are coming back in. You know why? Because these ordinances are the very means by which God intends for us to memorialize visually, vividly, the greatest of his saving acts in the cross, the empty tomb. In baptism, we remember the mighty power of God to rescue and transform a person's life. That through baptism of the Spirit and union with Christ through faith, this this believer who's in the waters is, is, is corporately identifying with Jesus and with all of us. That by faith union with Christ, he or she has passed through the waters of of judgment with Jesus, that their sins have been cleansed, that they've been raised from the dead with Christ to walk in a new life with all the people of God. In the Lord's Supper, we commemorate and then call to mind the broken body and the shed blood of Christ that satisfies God's wrath for sins and unites us together with all the saints in Him. Friends, maybe when your kids... Observe the Lord's Supper, even here in a few moments. One of them might lean over to you and and say, Mommy, Daddy, what does all this mean? Well, friend, say something like this, Buddy, we're remembering what Jesus has done to rescue us from eternal hell. We're celebrating the fact that he's done everything necessary to bring us home to God. The greatest enemy to our faith is often forgetfulness, isn't it? We're so easily prone to forget what God has done and to turn our gaze away from him toward ourselves. Beloved God's kindness, in his kindness, I should say, he has provided these ordinances to help us. When the plates are passed here in a few moments, friends, please don't treat the celebration of the supper as perfunctory. It's just some kind of rote habit that we do every month. No, friends, this is God's prescribed visual aid to help you and me persevere in faith. It's his ordained means to nourish our faith and cause us to remember that if this is how God acted in the past to save us, then surely our present and our future is secure. There is a day when we will all feast in Canaan land. And so we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may have noticed verse 9 when we read before. The text actually seems to indicate that while the tribes gathered to bring the stones to Gilgal, Joshua set up another 12-stone monument in the river itself. Did you see that? I'm really not sure of the full significance of this act, so we'll not talk about that much. But it's interesting that when you get to the New Testament, When you get to the New Testament, the New Testament authors describe these flood and water rescue events as baptisms. So Peter in in first, excuse me, in second Peter two, Peter describes Noah's flood as a baptism. Paul in first Corinthians 10 describes the Red Sea crossing as a baptism. He writes in first Corinthians 10 2 that those who pass through the Red Sea, listen, were baptized into Moses. In other words, at the Red Sea, God's people were fully identified and united under Moses and were incorporated together to obey him. So knowing what we know now, it's no stretch to say that at the Jordan, God's people are being baptized into Joshua. God's people are being baptized into Joshua. They're fully identifying with him. They're committing themselves to obey and follow Joshua. So friends, with that knowledge, it's not hard at all to understand Jesus' command for every single believer in him to be baptized, right? We're identifying ourselves with him. We're following him by faith and public committing Ourself to Him. It's a pattern set all the way back in the Old Testament, even in these crossings of the seas. Hold that thought quickly and look at verse 19. Verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, the 10th day of the first month. Friends, the date the author lists here is not a random piece of info. Any Israelite, any Jew reading this story would have immediately known that date. It would be like us if we say the people of God were saved on December 24th. We'd be like, oh, they were saved and rescued on Christmas Eve. That's cool. In God's incredible providence, he caused his people to pass over the Jordan. On the very day, 40 years earlier, he commanded his people to slaughter a spotless lamb and smear the blood on the doorposts so that he might in mercy pass over their houses when he came to judge the Egyptians. The 10th day of the first month is the Passover. God, in his mercy, overlays the baptism of his people in the Jordan with the commemoration of their rescue in the Exodus. Beloved, 1,400 years later, 1,400 years later, a man from Aaron's priestly line would likewise step into the Jordan. Each of the four Gospels records John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan and especially his baptism of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was not baptized to signify repentance from his sins, but to identify himself with Israel's and with ours. As we read this morning, John 1.18 says that John intentionally baptized on the other side of the Jordan from the promised land. Did you notice that? On the other side. It's highly symbolic, it's amazingly encouraging. It's like God had John go to the other side on purpose so that when he baptized Jesus Christ, Jesus would symbolically pass from the land of death into the promised land of life victoriously. And then our Christ headed straight into the land to defeat our enemies in the great conquest for our souls. He defeated Satan in his temptation. He rolled back death and the curse and his miracles. And yes, he died on the cross to bear our sins, bearing the flood of judgment and then rising up triumphant. At the baptism of Christ, God the Father exalted Jesus the Son. In the synoptic gospels, the voice of the Father thundered from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Perhaps in light of all of this, in light of what we know now, in this thick tapestry of baptism and Passover imagery, it makes sense that when John saw Jesus come to the Jordan, he cried out, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you as our greater and mighty Joshua. And Father, we exalt you as the God of our salvation who has done everything necessary in Christ to bring us safely from death to life. Father, we marvel, we give you praise for our great salvation. And we ask that if there's one here that does not know you, has not been reconciled to you through faith in Christ, has not been had their sins forgiven, and the wrath of God satisfied and peace made through the blood of the cross, that even today they might step over and give their life to Jesus, trusting him that he has paid it all. Lord, we thank you, and we're ready to commemorate now the Lord's Supper. After we sing, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.